the gospel for today is one that I really like. It is extremely confusing and hard to understand. And um, I'm not so sure I'll do an adequate job, but I'm going to preach on the gospel. And, but before that, it just occurred to me uh, this week when I was writing this sermon to say part of the Green Sundays is also there's a didactic aspect to the preaching because it's the teaching season. And I thought I'd say something about the prayer that the presider prays at the beginning of each Eucharist. It's called the collect. It comes from the Latin word collecta, which means obviously to collect so it gives me an opportunity to do uh, some historical, liturgical stuff. I think probably in the next three or four months we're going to have an instructed Eucharist again, and we may do that over two Sundays, which means that uh, it'll be a sort of, I'll explain everything we do as we go, so it, you know where it came from and what it is and so forth. So today I want to talk about something called the entrance rite. When the Constantinian settlement occurred, that is to say Christianity became uh, the legal religion of the Roman Empire, we now moved from celebrating the Eucharist in house churches to celebrating the Eucharist in public civil, civic buildings. So you'll notice that the architecture of churches is very similar to what you see in Rome in the civil buildings of the Roman Empire with the apse and all of that sort of thing. That means we're going to, the, the, the clergy, the, the, the lay assistants, any others have to come, get in. They have to come in, uh, down the aisle. They have to enter. And so there become, begins then a rite, R-I-T-E, developed for entering. And in many of these liturgies, in the early Roman liturgy during the Constantinian settlement, there were lots of people in these processions. So the choirs were singing Kyrie eleison, Kyrie eleison, Kyrie eleison. And uh, then they got into the sanctuary, or, and then they maybe sang the Gloria, and then they had to stop the choir from doing that. Uh, we don't use them anymore because, as they say in the language of the Roman Catholic Church, they have been uh, suppressed. But there used to be an article that the priest wore around uh, their arm called the maniple, the most inconvenient, dangerous liturgical garment there was. Um, this was allegorized into all kinds of things. The, the essential priestly garment, uh, the towel that our Lord used to dry the feet, of the disciples on Maundy Thursday. Actually, what it was was a remnant of something that a Roman senator carried, which was a scarf. And when they were coming in in civic processions and there were bugles blowing or whatever else it was and they all got in, they had to stop the music so the dignitary waved this thing as the signal, stop playing, stop singing. Right? So we've waved this, and now we have to start. And the presider starts by taking all of this procession, all of the individual prayers of the people that were present, who were praying and doing what they were doing, and sum them up, and in some way relate them 
to the readings that they're about to hear in the liturgy. So what we have today is grant us, Lord, not to be anxious about earthly things, but to love things heavenly. And even now, while we are placed among things that are passing away, to hold fast to those that shall endure through Jesus Christ, our Lord, and so on. So that means that this must have something to do, we hope, with what we read in the lectionary, particularly the gospel. And this, this cycle, C, we read from our patron Luke, and there's a, a gospel we hear today about ways not to be anxious about earthly things, but to love things heavenly. We'll have to explain that probably in a little while. But the fact is that um, that's talking about something that Luke is at pains to describe today, uh, and we need to give it some historical context so that we might be able to understand it. Remember that I mentioned, uh, have mentioned more than once, uh, Luke's gospel uh, addresses issues of economic justice and disparity more than any other gospel writer just as he reproduces more healing stories of Jesus than any other gospel writer because he's a doctor and he's interested in Jesus' healings. And so Luke is at pains to say, how do we, what is the right relationship with our wealth? The, the new version, the new Revised Standard Version and the previous one I believe did too, in the King James, the authorized version, it was referred to mammon. You cannot serve God and mammon or unrighteous mammon. We don't use that anymore, mainly because nobody really knows what it means. <laughs> Never did. So the assumption is it probably meant wealth, but maybe it had other things attached to it, but we don't really fully understand the meaning of the word. So we have said wealth in this particular case. And I suspect for Luke, he's concerned uh, about this in any case. So we have a story here, a parable, uh, known as the parable of the, well, there's a couple of them, the um, dishonest manager. And there's another description of the parable in biblical scholarship called the parable of the shrewd man manager. And in the text, you hear that he's commended for his shrewdness. So it's kind of hard to understand why that, why that might be, you know. So let me say one other thing about Luke uh, that I've mentioned before, but it's important. I believe that Luke was uh, in a congregation of Gentile Christians. We, that's a given. But that, the, that he wrote his gospel in about 80 or 85 A.D. Now, this is 50 years after the Christ event. You know, Jesus' ministry, his death, his crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. It's about 50 years later or 52 years later. That's two generations, nearly. And so he is trying to write about the situation on the ground for people who believed in the Messiahship of Jesus and who want to be faithful. And they're trying to figure this out because I think that community was, in the terms of the ancient Near East, a well-heeled group of Christian people in their community. And they want to know something about the right relationship that should exist 
between their wealth or their stuff and what they should do with it uh, after they do what we're all uh, usually do and should do, and that's look after those closest to us. And remember last week or the week before, I mentioned Father Schlegel saying one time to me, I know, and he must have to you when he was the rector, since he's an anthropologist, that the, first, the basic unit of uh, humanity is the family. And in anthropology, it's called the kinship group, right? So our obligation, uh, the, the source of our uh, moral desire to extend or doing it in any case, whether we want to or not, is to look after the kinship group, the family. That's first. The family comes first. You will notice, by the way, that in Jesus' teaching, he, he stands at some critical distance from family. So it's always amusing to me to hear cer certain Christians talk about family values when Jesus says, I have no mother or father or brothers or sisters, right? Or you must hate your mother and your father and yeah. your brothers and your sisters. It doesn't sound like... You know, he's, he's uh, speaking about family values in the way that a lot of people advertise it. I think family was very important to him, the family of God. And this is particularly important when we think about the family of God in terms of those who are not popular. Those who are on the margins. Those who are normally despised. Those who we believe uh, should uh, have less attention paid to them because of who they are or what they've done or uh, whatever, what they say or whatever it might be. The powerless in some ways. So he stands at some remove from that idea of family, but he also speaks from time to time about the importance of looking after your kinship group. And I think most of us uh, white middle class people in this country have been taught that that's our first obligation, you know. You're a boy. When I was a kid, my grandfather used to say this to me all the time about you got to look after your family, you got to work hard, you got to manage your affairs properly, you have to do these things because it's the right thing to do. What Jesus is at pains to do is to say that that is as maybe, but it is true also thinking about the text today, moving to the future or thinking now about how you understand this as you live, you need to begin to bring to bear on a wider group the same values that you labor to apply to your kinship group. So the generosity that you, ex that you express is to your family first, but then to those beyond the family. And so when we all do that, we do what Peter Moran says, uh, constitute a society with the values of the gospel where it is easier for people to be good. And where we all thrive together. That we all hang together in this, in this particular situation. So Jesus today is talking, uh, speaking a parable about the dishonest manager. The, uh, the, the big cheese has brought him in to uh, talk about his management of the affairs. And his management of the affairs apparently has not been satisfactory. It has not been honest. And so he uh, says, give me an account of your, what you're overseeing, and you can't be my manager any longer. 
So the manager is at sea about this, and he said, I'm going to be disgraced because of this. I've got to do something where at least I, I preserve something of my reputation and may be able to also maintain the connections that I have developed over time as the result of my manager managing around for this fellow. So he then gets some of the people who owe the manager stuff, and he uh, cuts the bill, he reduces the bill. So he said, you know, give me uh, half of, in one case, the olive oil, uh, knock 20% off of the, off of the uh, wheat, and so forth. And then the big surprise is that the manager, or, or, the, or the, over, the steward, the big guy, says he's commended for this. I mean, the line for me in this, I read this, if I have to come up with a Bible study line to begin the finance committee meeting <laughs> at the Diocese of El Camino Real, I always, Richard Mueller's the chair, and he comes up with these oddball biblical passages that are of interest only to him and have absolutely nothing to do with what we're doing. But uh, he and his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly for the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. I was at a, I've been doing a finance pieces of things in, in church life for a long time. When I was in the Diocese of Arizona, beginning my ministry, I was at some diocesan meeting, and the new executive officer of the diocese, um, the Reverend Hunter something, I can't remember his last name now, we were saying, you know, we need to, to uh, manage these resources with some integrity, and we need to look at the investment policy that we have here, and we need to do this. He said, you know, uh, that may be fine in the ideal Christian world, but in the real world, this is what we have to do. <laughs> I couldn't believe it, hear it, but it came out of his mouth. You know? Now, is this what is meant in this case or no? You can interpret this parable in a number of ways, and so I'm going to kind of swim around in that for a little bit. The manager has either reduced the bills by eliminating his commission or permitted falsification of the accounts to his master. One is not dishonest. The other is. So we don't know how that operated in this case. He took his commission off. So he, he restored what the, the master had said, this is what I want from this, you know. It's like when I was at the old San Francisco restaurants and some of them, the owner would say to the bartenders, I want you to pour $25 out of every bottle in this bar, and if you pour more than $25, you can keep it. Right? Or, if you pour honestly, I will buy you a Cadillac every year. Which is what some did. So he's commended for this. The astuteness is in using possessions so as to gain rather than lose one's future. So 
you know, investing with integrity. You know, make sure your money works while you sleep. That's not a. That's not something that's a, 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 a sin, particularly. But who are you doing it for, and why are you doing it? I think that's where Jesus is getting to this. If people like the dishonest manager use possessions to secure their future, Christian disciples should use their possessions to advance the values of the kingdom of God and to cultivate the generosity that a mature Christian spirituality creates. Now, there's some people who believe that when Jesus refers to the children of light, that he's actually referring to the Essenes at Qumran. The children of light have renounced everything. They were like a monastic community. They renounced all their possessions. And some of them lived in a certain monastic style at Qumran, not all of them. So he would, we might understand that, uh, Luke would, as the very idealistic um, claiming that's what every human being ought to do. Right? And the sons of this world, or whatever the right attack uh, is in our own generation, could be understood to be the Pharisees who amassed enormous amounts of wealth but were tight-fisted with regard to their generosity. So they behaved in a, in a uh, stingy manner. And in their demeanor and everything else, they looked as if uh, they, you know, well, you know, I'm hardly making ends meet here. I really need to be careful. So he could be addressing it to those two audiences. That's a possibility. I think that uh, what Jesus had in mind when this parable was spoken, by the way, this is unique to Luke. This is some of the special L that I talk about. It only appears here. So Jesus, through Luke, in this parable, is saying something uh, about how we understand our role in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not somewhere else. Christian people do not labor ultimately to get into the kingdom of God. We've gone, been down that road for so long. We're here now to express the values of the kingdom of God. And we're to express the values of the kingdom of God in the future. Or for some, in some way to understand that would be the people now who are laboring in this way are creating a situation where they're going to be able to continue this beyond their lifetime that the values of the kingdom of God become now more uh, in circulation than they normally are. And, th and that means understanding the generosity that is necessary to do this. I think Luke said to himself, you know what? Nobody's going to give away all their stuff. People in this community are not going to do this. And they probably shouldn't. Because people who are savvy about uh, good governance and wise business methods can assist in the advancement of the kingdom of God. And we can take the moral high ground about that. Some people do. But the fact of the matter is that it's important to learn how to look, look after your resources carefully and in a godly manner. You know? the, the investments in the diocesan investment trust in this diocese 
are socially responsible. People say, well, when you start talking about that stuff, it makes absolutely no sense to me at all. But a socially responsible investment policy requires the creation of what is known as a screen. What it is, as the, as the resources flow, say, this, we're not putting the resources here, here, or here. You know, so screens can be really big, and screens can be really small. So we have uh, a, a proper size screen and haven't gone down the, the road of being just, you know. If there's any group of people, my friends, that need to be uh, idealistic, I think it's Christian people. But it's also true that uh, the most emotionally, spiritually, and mentally mature people are realistic about their ideals. So learning what that means uh, is the spiritual journey that we're all on in perpetuity, you know. So this week, think about how we understand our role uh, to be uh, partners with God in advancing the values of the kingdom. And what does that mean, creating a society where it is easier for people to be good? And as I say practically every sermon these days, uh, you are necessary to fulfill God's plan for the cosmos. Each one of us is important to God, unconditionally loved, accepted, and forgiven. And God needs us uh, to fulfill the purposes of the cosmos. And we should give thanks for being part of that. So we're both beneficiaries of the values of the kingdom of God and ambassadors for them. And know also, to say over again, this is not a gospel about giving away all your stuff. It is about learning the right relationship with your stuff. Amen.